This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The first passenger train in India started its journey at 3:35 p.m. on April 16th, 1853. A train with 14 railway carriages and 400 guests left Bombay's Bori Bandar for Thane with a 21 gun salute. It was hauled by three locomotives. They were called Sindh, Sultan and Sahib. The journey took an hour and 15 minutes and history was made. But how did the company acquire lands from the railways? There were so many interesting uh, stories there. Let me tell you one of those stories. A number of villages in Kurla, the estate of one Bamanji Harmusji, and the land on the hillside of the Sion Causeway were required for constructing the railway line. Captain Crawford, the superintending engineer, estimated the assessment of land of Bamanji's village uh, to be around rupees 548 as compensation to be paid to to the gentleman but bamanji refused the compensation he surrendered the land to the government as he did not wish to reap any advantage for the railways constructed in his freehold estate but he requested that a station should be constructed at kurla However, there was a controversy. The controversy arose over the estate of Bamanji Harmosji. He demanded a compensation of two thousand five hundred and thirty-seven um, rupees per annum for the destruction of his salt pans, where railway lines passed through his estate at Kurla. At the instruction of J. S. Law, the collector of Thana. wrote to the mamlatdar of salset the mamlatdar gave an estimate that about 86 salt pans would be destroyed and about 26 other were to be rendered useless by the construction of railways bamanji was not happy he was dissatisfied and complained that the number of beds destroyed were much more he expected to receive a net amount of rupees 22000 that was not to happen as per the government's order bamanji eventually received a compensation of only 12000 for the value not exceeding 8000 or so square yards of salt pans near kurla that was uh, to the northeast of sion causeway his estate was finally acquired in 1851 there are so so many stories and i'm sure you'll read some of those on your own and we'll share them quite a few of them later welcome back this is history chatter bombay born episode 2 i said that no one who had not seen the fort with the ramparts in place could possibly imagine what bombay had been like during the 1850s i said also that bombay was on the cusp of a major transformation from 1854 onward these two points are obviously connected in 1854 the government of british india established the department of public works for the first time 
The push came directly from the textile lobby in Manchester. They were interested in cotton and insisted that enough money should be made available for the building of railways, roads, and canals. In fact, some metal roads later came to be called cotton roads. When Bartle Frere arrived as the governor of Bombay, he decided to give priority to public works. No application from the railways or any superintendent engineer may be rejected without his first seeing the details. That, incidentally, was his first order or one of his first orders. This is not the place to discuss in detail the various public works initiatives of Bertel Frere in Bombay. But I'll take up the case of the demolition of the ramparts. It is often said that the modernization of Bombay began with the regime of Bertel Frere. It may be an overstatement. The time was right, and Bombay probably owes more to the economic prosperity following the growth of the cotton trade, particularly during the 1860s. It brought in, in its wake, um, a fast-growing population, which gave a further push to the prospects of development of Bombay as a modern city. But Bartle Frere certainly understood what the people needed at the time and adopted policies that satisfactorily enough fulfilled those aspirations. The old European fort of Bombay was still standing and the British settlement was within its walls. Besides, some of the wealthy local people also had their houses within the fort. The influx of population, even in the early period, had led to the decision that improvement of the island of Bombay should be taken up in right earnest. More space for buildings was required, good and wider roads were felt necessary, and some other reforms were also called for. As a result, the idea of demolishing the fort walls um, was mooted as early as 1840-41. A correspondent for Times of India wrote, and I quote, the maintenance of the fort of Bombay is not only useless, but has become a downright and most serious nuisance to the inhabitants at large. It is the source of a ridiculous waste of money to government itself. The fort is a costly and filthy nuisance, unquote. By 1855, some of the old portions were removed, but it was not sufficient. Only the Apollo gate and some other part was destroyed, and it was felt, and I quote, that the only matter of regret is that the hand of the destroyer should not extend itself all around. However, the local inhabitants were not in favor of the idea of demolishing the walls of the fort. And in fact, they appealed to the government that space can also be obtained from outside the fort. Unquote. In 1862, some factors led to the actual order of the demolition of the fort walls. By 1862, the need to improve the city became more acute because of overcrowding, which had already become a serious problem. Especially, the Europeans had to suffer as the area in which they lived had no space left. It was enclosed by the ramparts, 
As a result, house rent rose to an extravagant level. Space for public building was also not available. Second, there was no necessity of maintaining these walls by spending large sums because originally the fort was built for giving protection to the small community of British traders at Bombay from the attacks of various powers, especially the Angrias on the western coast. But after the downfall of the Marathas in 1818, there was no power which could have attacked Bombay by sea or by land. The British power was supreme. There was no need of um, offering protection to this settlement by 1862. Third, the walls of the old fort had become useless for defense. The high walls interfered with the circulation of air and the ditches contained stagnant water. Thus, these walls made the city nothing but filthy and unhealthy as these were a source of disease. Fourth, wider and good roads were required for communications. Under these circumstances, there was no alternative but to push the project of demolishing the walls of the old fort. It was Sir Bertel Frere who was mainly responsible for the final orders of 1862 for the removal of obsolete fortifications and useless public buildings and of the old ramparts of Bombay. By 1863-64, considerable progress was made in the demolition of the western ramparts of the fort and filling in the ditches, together with the formation of new roads on the Esplanade and improving portions of the old roads during 1864-65, the demolition of the western ramparts and a part of the eastern ramparts was over. During 65-66, the ground was leveled and a part of the ditches surrounding the forts was filled in. Thus, the ramparts were leveled part of the space laid out in roads, open spaces and sites for public buildings. The remainder, which was comprised of a considerable area, was sold under conditions which could secure the interests of the public and also bring enough money for the government to cover the expenses of the work done. The vacant ground and a part of the esplanade was plotted out for purposes of residential and office buildings. These plots were put up for sale by public auction. The price yielded by these plots was considered fabulous in those days. It ranged from 70 to 105 rupees per square yard. I'm talking about 1865. And I quote, The government of India, to whom the land belonged, netted half a crore as earnest money. Unquote. So that was the breakdown of ramparts. I was also talking about Dinshaw Watcher's memoir. 
in which he recalled the hard work of the pioneering men who had virtually built the city of Bombay. For instance, Wacha gratefully noted the contribution of Gerald Ongier, who was among the first to anticipate the value of the harbor. Ongier was the second governor of Bombay. He arrived in 1670 as the president of Surat and governor of Bombay. Even then, Surat remained the center of the company's operations during the time. But the growth and development of Bombay would be the direct result of Ongier's efforts during his term of service from 1669 until his death in 1677. He wrote long letters of instructions to officials in Bombay and spent time there when circumstances permitted. As president of Surat and governor of Bombay, he was the commercial guardian of the two locations and the political head of the British in India. At the same time, he was a father figure to the lesser British officialdom and the local population. James Douglas, in his Bombay and Western India, called him, and I quote, the Moses of our English exodus from Surat to Bombay. Bombay's potential had been noticed by Ongier's predecessor, George Oxenden. He believed the entire British trade in India would shortly move from Surat to Bombay, since the harbour was more commodious. Ongier's talent for organization and leadership would eventually transform the little fishing village into a thriving center for trade and industry. He took a series of organizational initiatives between 1672 and 1675, when he lived in Bombay. He brought under the British control, and that's probably one of the most earliest important decisions in the career of Bombay. Gerald Anja brought under British control the seven islands, which would later be welded into the modern island of Bombay. However, his most ambitious objective, which was to plant an English colony in Bombay, did not quite come through. Bombay passed through very difficult times following disasters after disasters. As the 18th century dawned, the British lauded over, and I quote, a deserted Bombay, a rising Calcutta, and a flourishing Madras, unquote. Let me quote Percival Spear for more detail. The period of depression which ensued lasted well into the 18th century and its inhabitants fulfilled one test of smallness by being ashamed of their city and wishing themselves in any other part of the company's dominions, unquote. The rise of Bombay was not a phenomenon of early British rule. It happened, of course, during the later British rule. The actual task of fortification began in the early 18th century, in 1715, under the leadership of Charles Boone. Traces of early fortifications could still be seen in early 1910s on the Sion and Oli Hills, and on the Mahim foreshore. 
The work of fortification was carried out in phases amid rumors of war since the 1740s. It was finally over in 1764. Bombay was finally made fully impregnable. The fortification stood erect till about 1862 or so, something I spoke about earlier in this podcast. Wacha would have seen it as a young boy in 1850s. But what or where exactly was the fort? What is still called the Bombay Castle was the pivot of those fortifications, which extended from Apollo Bandar to the eastern foreshore, as far as St. George's Hospital, and from there to the west, where the Empire Building now stands, to the further extremity near the Science College. This large area, covering more than two miles in length, and three-quarter miles in breadth was enclosed and called the fort. Once news spread that the fort area was now secured, civilian and commercial constructions followed in quick succession. The wealthy moved in and built their homes around the area. Then Shawacha fondly recalled visiting the ruins of the Bombay Castle. It was the earliest defensive structure built in the fort and stood strong during the 18th century. But by the mid-19th century, the gates were still there, though they had become hoary with age. Even then, it had been reduced to an obsolete place of arms. Old guns and cannons and all sorts of shells could be seen strewn around. Heavy ordnance and small arms would be on display in a hall guarded by English troops. It was sort of a museum. The original structure had long disappeared. In the early 20th century, the area was and still is under the possession of the Indian Navy. The main building within the castle used to be the official residence of the governor of Bombay in the 17th century. I'm talking about, for instance, Gerald Ongier. Later, the governor's house would be moved, initially to the suburb of Paral, and much later to the Malabar Hills, where it stands now. The fort had been a site of great power and authority for a long time. The place used to be called the Old Secretariat. Jonathan Duncan was the last governor of Bombay to work from out of the castle. Duncan, of course, was more famous as a founder member of the Asiatic Society of Calcutta and of the Sanskrit College in Banaras. He had been the governor of Bombay during the last 16 years of his life, between 1795 and 1811. Interestingly, a 1958 PhD by one V.A. Narayan from SOAS, School of Oriental and African Studies, in the London University on Duncan, did not study his career beyond 1795, when he left Banaras for Bombay. The Bombay Castle ceased to be the seat of the government of the Bombay Presidency, 
by the second decade of the 19th century. Nonetheless, an evening visit to the Bombay castle was quite an attraction, especially for children during the 1850s. The evening parade of the army to the accompaniment of drum bits and military flutes was a major draw. Watcher recalled himself hopping and jumping at home, playing the dummy soldier. Even though explosives were laid out in high quantity in various parts of the castle area, where alert soldiers duly stood guard, the local children were not particularly afraid of them. Sometimes, the local children would pass by the living quarters of the soldiers and even participate in little games with the soldiers' children. Young white women, probably wives of soldiers, would call their chicken back to their cages in the evening, whistling and offering greens. It seems idyllic. Families of white soldiers, women and children, busy with domestic chores and play, with Indian children from the neighborhood, Indian families occasionally joining them. There's a grand military funeral of a senior military official sometime in 1853 or 54. The man had passed away in Pune. The body was brought up to Bombay and placed on a catafalque in the arsenal. It was open to the public for paying the last respect. All Watcher remembered was that the dead man was somehow connected to the royal family and his body was later sent back to England. Between 1850s and 1910s, Bombay underwent at least three major rounds of transformation. The first round began with the demolition of the ramparts of the fort and the building of a new class of structures led by the impressive university clock tower, later to be called Rajabai Tower. It was designed by Sir Gilbert Scott, and since 2018, UNESCO has declared it a World Heritage Site. The Mumbai University in 2019 received the prestigious UNESCO Asia-Pacific Award for cultural heritage conservation for the work undertaken at the Rajabai Tower and the library block. Tata Consultancy Services funded the work, and Indian Heritage Society carried it out. Another great transformation followed during the 1880s, with waves of industrialization sweeping Bombay. The suburbs of Bombay, which were dotted with grand bungalows of senior government officials, such as the governor, judges, or members of the council, now made way for cotton textile factories. The worship of King Cotton would now begin in right earnest. Industrial capitalism drove away the civilian bureaucracy from the suburbs. The seat of the civilian power swiftly relocated to the Malabar and to Kambala Hills. The suburbs were now taken over by factories and uh, by accommodation for the growing population of workers. Ugly utilities replaced the verdant beauty of our youthful days, Watcher wrote wistfully. His friends and uh, him would often visit these green suburbs during the weekends for a whiff of fresh country airs. 
The third round of transformation began during the early 20th century. Following the plague epidemic of the 1890s, the authorities carried out a drive for improvement, particularly of drainage and sanitation systems. It led to the opening up of new areas for purposes of residence. The birth of Shivaji Park is a classic example of this phase of transformation. Some officials believe that unsanitary living conditions primarily caused the epidemic. At once setting up institutions to decongest the city. Bombay City Improvement Trust, which thus came into being, dedicated itself to building roads and developing new residential plots. A new vision was developed for the stretch of lands that were to become the Shivaji Park neighborhood in the 1930s. Its thick vegetation was now seen to prevent the sea breeze from reaching into the city. Just as the popular local practice of manuring palm trees with dried fish was deemed rotten. Arrangements were duly made to trim the vegetation, converting the place into a large park and about 200 residential plots. Bombay Municipal Corporation later took over the development and sale of the park and residential plots. By 1940, all the plots around the Shivaji Park had sold out. During the 1850s, however, the fort area suffered from a crisis of water supply. The city would see annual famines till 1865. Generous citizens would arrange for spring wells at certain intervals in the fort area. Water was a scarce commodity, and it would be sold by small casks. Each handa, the vessel in which water would be sold or measured, would cost between two and four annas. Quite expensive, isn't it? There were chaotic scenes of women from various communities standing before the wells from dawn to dusk. A common scene in Hindi movies about people living in various chawls of Bombay and later Mumbai. Everyone would try to bypass the other and there'd be fights and abuses all the time. It was quite common to hear them cursing and abusing. Watch I use it quaint old words for abuses such as billings get. The ramparts of the fort had long become useless for military purposes. But impressive wading mandaps would be erected on top of them, usually by wealthy Hindus and Parsis, who secured special permission from the authorities. For instance, several marriages in the family of uh, Sir Jamsetji Jijivoy were celebrated with wedding mandaps on top of the ramparts. Now, did the engineers who had erected those ramparts ever anticipate that those dar military posts would someday be turned into a venue for raucous and robust wedding celebrations? Then there was the Maidan, a wide stretch of greens behind the western ramparts of the fort on the area where the College of Sciences stood to the office of the police commissioner. It was a vast parade ground during Watcher's boyhood. Military parades usually took place during the afternoon. 
There was a dhobi ghat when the Chhatrapati Shivaji terminus stands today. Washed clothes would be laid out in the maidan. Mind you, we're still about 20-25 years away from the time when Victoria terminus would be built. There was a small kitchen garden too, from where young boys would pluck out ladies' fingers, often provoking the ire of the guards. The regular parades of the native infantry in the Maidan was quite a spectacle. Let me quote Watcher again. The full dress parade was a sight to behold, especially on Queen's birthday. The European infantry in the fort, as well as the European artillery from the St. George's Fort and the native infantry took part in the firing of the royal salute of 21 guns. The Indian troops had red tight-fitting tunics and black breeches for purposes of ordinary wear. But on a field day such as that, the breeches were white and the cap was a shako, either adorned with white and red ball of plumes. Portraits of colors um, of these might be seen in some of those illustrated books about Bombay. The troops carried a big black vamished pouch at the back west and also wore white leather belts slung crosswise over the chest with a small square brass plate in the center giving the number of the regiment. They had a fine physique. The rifle gun was unknown, yet, though it came a little later. The funny way in which these soldiers repeated the words of command by their company officers was a regular source of amusement to the children. Poor, unsophisticated soldiers. They knew no English. They caught the sound of the words and funnily reproduced them beyond all traces of the original. For instance, Standardese was transmuted into Thunderdis. By the left was parodied into Bajile, and so on. I propose to conclude the second episode of Bombay Born on this lighter note. We will have plenty more on the early life and the sudden rise of Bombay to great heights in the episodes coming up. This is episode 2, Bombay Born in History Chatter podcast. Please subscribe to History Chatter on the EP Media website or your favorite podcast streaming platforms. 